We did an ED system for South Auckland Health. And developers used to go out there a lot. People in ED, they were just totally blunt, no sugar coating. They just tell us why our product was rubbish, <laughs> <laughs> how it was terrible, they'd be fixed here and here and there. And after um, six months of uh, uh, getting periodically told what was wrong with the product, it actually became quite a good product. In fact, it actually became award winning. In fact, it became a great product. But it was just the interaction with the specialists, nurses in particular, that's how we got our very, very best products. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Today we're sitting down for a chat with Ian McRae, who is the founder, former chief executive officer of Orion Health, an award-winning provider of healthcare software that he founded in 1993. Ian has led Orion Health on an impressive journey today with offices in 15 countries and clients across 30 countries and whose innovative software helps enable personalised healthcare for between 1% and 2% of the world's population. Welcome Ian, how are you? I think the word you're really reaching for is roller coaster. <laughs> Impressive journey. I think a roller coaster might have been more. Oh. Eh? I don't know whether one of those we're going up again, but um, whether it was post COVID pandemic, there's a newfound interest in health, all things health, uh, health software. Uh, so we're on a, what's, what's one of those going up uh, parts of the roller coaster? Anyhow. It's busy times. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of people in New Zealand would would have a level of familiarity with with Orion Health and your story, but probably probably not a you know huge amount of detail other than the bits and pieces that have come through the media. Uh, before we start, big thank you to our show partners, to Vodafone, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology for their support of the New Zealand Tech Podcast, and of course, you know their their broader support of our tech and innovation ecosystems here. In New Zealand, maybe we can start at the beginning in terms of you know where did, where did you get started in life? I grew up in a place called uh, Wairanga or Okaria, uh, which is near Tikawata, which is near Huntley, which is in uh, North Waikato. On a, on a farm, it was idyllic. There's always things to do, uh, machinery around the place. It was, it was a great lifestyle. It's wonderful, and um, yeah, so um, uh, made you very self-sufficient. You kind of need to be when you're in the, in the software business. Yeah, so and, some uh, good good lessons to take forward. And, and you know, I'd say that uh, you know uh, some people uh, do long term plans as to what their businesses might look like. We never did that. You'd have to say that Orion was a little bit of an accidental success. We sort of woke up one day and Orion was a big company, and uh, we just sort of every moment in time we'd look how to do things better a better product a better this win a deal here win a deal there and over time you grow and grow and grow and then one day or other you wake up 100 200 people so what was the what was the initial idea that uh, that you that you got started with what was the initial opportunity that you saw the gap in the market the the need how did it actually come about didn't want to be a consultant just okay. talk, just talking about doing things <laughs> and not actually doing it I wanted to, we wanted to we wanted to produce some real software some real products some real tangible things and not just talking because prior to this you know some of us uh, came out of Ernst and Young a lovely great company by the way but as a consultant you were always just giving advice and you were never actually doing it so we decided to uh, form a software company yeah yeah it eventually became Orion Health 
Okay. So what was the initial start out? What was your sort of, you know, your target and what was the, what was the idea that you were able to you know, gain your first customers with? Well, Paul, we would do anything for anybody. Okay. <laughs> so we did some accounting software. We did, uh, what else did we do? Uh, travel reservation. That was pretty interesting. Uh, we did uh, international airports. So we did the Brisbane International Airport, uh, putting bags on the planes. Wow. Auckland Air- International Airport. But the, the area where we made, got the most traction, the area that was the most satisfying, was indeed health. And so roughly about, uh, about um, 25 years ago, uh, we sold off everything else, got rid of everything else, shut it down, sold it off, and focused us on healthcare. Then um, grew and grew and grew. So, um, yeah, that yeah. was the benefit. New Zealand-based, but in order to grow the business, you had to be selling around the world. Mm. How, how did you do that in the 90s? Well, you got on a plane, you flew cattle class, and uh, you, you stayed in hotels, usually two or three or four of us in the one hotel room, and... Um, because uh, it was pretty expensive back then. It was much harder. All these internet, uh, video conferencing, apps, those sorts of things went around. So, yeah, uh, it was much more much more challenging. And when we, when we really started off, there wasn't really a very big IT industry at all uh, out of this country. Probably the biggest company would, would have been um, Jade, which was, uh, they were the, by far the biggest. Yep. Gil Simpson yep. had a good business running in, out of Christchurch. Mm. But after that, it really tapered away quite dramatically. So there wasn't the uh, the thriving technology sector uh, that you have in New Zealand today that did not exist. There wasn't the, ex- the experience base in New Zealand that you could go to to get advice from. Probably not a lot of podcasts to listen to at that stage because mm-hmm. they didn't exist yet. Podcasts are something like you get in the vegetable garden or something <laughs> like that. <you> know. <laughs> no, that, that sort of stuff just didn't exist. Yeah. In fact, we were the first company to get an internet link Certainly in Auckland, I think probably New Zealand, the first um, business, and we had to write a letter uh, to Europe, and it came back like two or three months later saying, yes, sir, Ryan, you could join internet. So we joined up a nine kilobit per second analog link to Auckland University, really slow, and we started sending emails and joining chat groups. And, wow. uh, and at the time, you couldn't use email for marketing. But we would send out email, emails to the, um, some of the uh, news groups saying there's a new version of, we had a product called Medlink HL7++. And one of our emails, we said we'd support, we supported the new version, version 3. Uh, the guy who ran HL7 sent me, a, where's Rochelle, sent me a, um, an email. So that's rather interesting. Maybe you could provide us the spec because it hasn't been written yet. <laughs> so so the, uh, today, internet is full noise, marketing, selling stuff. 30 years or so ago, you weren't allowed to sell things over internet. Can you imagine that? Yeah, hard to imagine, really, with how much we rely on the internet today, that's for sure. That's right. And, uh, and you know, a lot of people are hugely suspicious about internet, whether Wikipedia was better than the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, whether it was just a place where people go, could go and get, um, you know, bad material, bomb recipes and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, that was the view of internet uh, 30 years ago, and now it's just become indispensable. Mm. Although yeah. some, some pretty, of those sort of views still exist in their own I think you think forms, you're right, right? actually. <laughs> but the, uh, but the uh, good thing for, uh, for New Zealand, for our tech sector, it has leveled the playing field hugely from a technology point of view. And so while it was much harder 30 years ago to sell into North America, US, Europe, uh, internet, it's still not easy, but the internet has made it, made it um, lower the barrier. 
So what were some of the the really hard challenges that you had to to get through to be able to grow the business in those early days? Oh, the first big challenge, you know, we did quite well out of New Zealand. Uh, County Man- County's Manica was a great customer. Uh, then various other hospitals, uh, Ministry of Health, we used to do a lot of work for them. Um, but the big challenge for us was to get established in North America. Where do you set yourself up? Uh, getting established in the UK, Australia. It was quite hard to do. You know, we had a few slip-ups. But we eventually, eventually got up and going in the US. And, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it was quite challenging to, to get established in those remote markets. Slip-ups. Tell me about slip-ups. <laughs> what, did you, what did you have to go through there? Oh, we hired a, we hired an American sales force. You know, we've got somebody in Florida, somebody in Texas, and a few other locations. Uh, actually, uh, Chicago was pretty good, and and we it was very hard to control a distributed sales force. And we found that as we were a relatively small New Zealand company coming into a big market like America, you weren't going to get the very best salespeople. Right. Why would they work for you when they could be working for somebody like Cure Packard or Dell, uh, maybe even Apple? And then you have Orion Health, this little wee, not quite a startup, but a pretty small company out of New Zealand. Why would you work for them? And so, you know, often you, you weren't getting the very, it was a challenge to get the very, very best uh, talent um, uh, out there. We had a lot of success shipping New Zealanders up there. Uh, they would spend a few years working here or out of university. And next thing, they'd be on a big plane, flying to North America. Yeah, and they've and so you you um, staffed your your international operations very heavily with Kiwis. stacked with Kiwis. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And and uh, yeah, and uh, it worked out quite well. Mm. When you when you were still trying to sell, you still had those challenges of being this small New Zealand company, even yeah. you know with Kiwis uh, going to front it. Mm. Uh, what what was that challenge like to be able to, you know, get in the door and to, to close a sale? Was that was the market sort of such that once they saw what you had to offer, um, that you were yeah, we got we got, we got a foothold in America because we visited customers that none of the big North American vendors would visit, you know, because they're so small, rural, out of the way facilities, and so we got going visit, visiting them, and then eventually we uh, the projects got bigger and bigger and bigger, and now. Today we're winning projects into the hundreds of millions, and we're the um, we're the lead in the project. Fantastic! It's it's you know um, these projects are huge, mm. so um, not too bad for three or four people who uh, <laughs> used to do odd jobs all over the show. Not a bad uh, not a bad result. Yeah, and and so what did you have to work through in terms of product because you've got that health focus, but. Did you end up with a whole lot of different, you know, bits of software that did a million different things, and and you know how has how has that evolved? Oh, we we're pretty lucky earlier on. We got some really really good developers, and uh, we had a big focus on engineering uh, in the early days. We had some of the very very best developers uh, around, and um, during our midlife, we we did move our focus away uh, from from pure engineering. And I think it really hurt hurt our products. So we've we've gone back to being very engineering focused, very focused on producing uh, products uh, for customers. We moved ourselves into a line of business structure, 
um, which are like a whole lot of little startups under the um, umbrella of a bigger organisation. Um, that has worked out really well for us. And so getting through these various stages of growth, how did you fund that? Uh, we funded it using uh, customer sales. We're bootstrapped. Yeah. And, and it did mean that you're always focused on delivering something which some customer really, really wanted. And if that customer wanted, there'd probably be a half other other customers who wanted the same thing. So being customer-led on product development um, mostly is a good idea. Occasionally you have to sort of jump ahead of what the customer's thinking. But in terms of smaller features, changing the products, improving them incrementally, the customers are great. They are your best uh, product managers. Particularly the, for in our industry, the doctors and nurses are great. Um, so yeah, um, we, we had a very strong focus on uh, engineering. Uh, we could develop things that nobody else could develop. So it was very good. What do you think that was, that you, you were able to develop those things that maybe others weren't, weren't developing or weren't able to develop? We, we did recruit it out of the universities. We got the very, very best developers. We teamed them up with more experienced developers. Yeah, so uh, we just had very, very good engineering. And what, were the, what, was sort of, what did the feedback loop look like in terms of the, uh, you know, getting feedback on what you were developing but also hearing what potential... Uh, clients were looking were looking for. I guess part of that would come through the sales cycle. But I think the best example was we did an ED system for South Auckland Health, and we used to go out there. I went up there occasionally. Developers used to go out there a lot, and uh, people in ED they were just totally blunt, uh, no sugar coating. They just tell us why our product was rubbish, <laughs> <laughs> how it was terrible. They'd be fixed here and here and there, and. and and after um, six months of uh, uh, getting periodically told what was wrong with the product, it actually became quite a good product. In fact, it actually became award-winning. In fact, it became a great product. But it was just the interaction with the specialists, uh, the nurses in particular. That's how we got our very, very best products. And the problem, I think, with these big corporates, and I, I know Orion suffered from this, is that um, the developers come detached, isolated uh, from... Uh, real nurses and doctors. And so at one point I think we had three, four, five steps uh, for a requirement to pass through before it got to a developer. So a lot of context, a lot of information is lost. So these days we're getting developers getting right back out to the customers, doing the installation, installing their pieces of brilliance themselves and so on and so forth. So that's how we do it. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's relevant in any business, isn't it? You know, it can be very easy to get get detached think what, you, what, what you've got is is amazing and actually if you go to the coal face and, and get the word and it's not you need to be really listening absolutely um so yeah um yeah as i said before you know the best some of the best product managers are your customers and they're always very generous with their help and advice and you know, I mean, I mean, this is what uh, there was a startup today. This is exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be tapping into that much l larger group of people these days who have built businesses globally. New Zealanders are generally very um, generous with their help. Mm. Yeah, it's it's true. Well, thank you for your generosity with your time today. So, oh, haven't you heard? I've lo <laughs> I lost my job. Haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I missed the odd job now. Hadn't you heard? Okay. 
how you were coping with the with the change. What you're doing uh, two days a week around the office? I think uh, half, half time. I hear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got to go and ask Brad for a job to do or two, you know. <laughs> have to ask him whether I've done a good job or not, you know. Yeah, I have to, I have to negotiate my salary with him, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit awkward, you know. It's a little bit awkward. So, yeah, it's all good fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a, there's a really good younger next generation group of people uh, coming through here. But, uh, but Orion is truly a really interesting business at the moment. It's just fascinating. Uh, what we're trying to do with Orion is that... Um, just like your relationship with your bank, you probably don't go to a high street bank anymore. I mean, how often do you go to go to a real branch? Hardly ever. And probably that, not at all, maybe now. Yeah, yeah, I think it's years since. Uh, maybe yeah. I went uh, once last year. But health has never, ever managed to crack uh, the same sort of relationship with uh, consumers, with patients, uh, because it's probably an order of magnitude more difficult, more complicated. In fact, it's very complicated. But uh, COVID, this pandemic has caused uh, health economies around the world to have a new look at where to put their investments. And it's not to put it into bigger and better hospitals. The investment has to go into keeping people out of hospitals. It has to go into treating people uh, instead of having the obligatory 15-minute appointment made in five days' time. You want to treat people straight away in their homes, and if necessary, get them to come in. So health is going to go through a fairly uh, significant transformation over the next couple of years. Health economies around the world are going to be pouring more and more money into exactly the space that Orion Health is a world leader in, probably probably certainly in the vanguard, if not the leader, in um, tying medical records together, making them available to physicians and um, uh, nurses, and making them available to patients as well. Because even today, after years of integration, tying data together, you can go to a specialist and he will not be able to, he will not know what drugs you're on. He will not know what problems you've had, what visits uh, to facilities you've had. Now, it has improved. A lot of that is available. But in my situation, I get some uh, the odd drug or two from my GP, uh, a few more from my specialist, but then I get over-the-counter stuff. So nobody in my circle of care has a full picture of my drugs. And and, and so the reason for that being is the patient themselves aren't involved in their own healthcare. They're just the subject, the object of healthcare, but they're not actually uh, managing it, in control of it, so on and so forth. So I think the big shift in healthcare is to get the patient logging on each morning uh, to the device because it provides some really useful functionality. The, the useful things would be, may I suggest, uh, a useful thing would be up and coming events, the useful thing would be the medications you're on, and another useful thing is um, any, any, any symptoms or other, 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 other things going on. Uh, this is the stuff that patients would find useful and ultimately could be feedback to specialists and their GPs. So anyhow, it's a hot sector, it's rapidly changing, and nobody has the complete answer today, uh, but the Ryan's at the forefront in the vanguard. So interesting times, eh? Yeah, that's 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 exciting. Yeah, and by the way, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm quite the expert in these matters now, having had a little wee minor brain tumour uh, a year ago. Uh, yeah, well, it was actually quite a significant one, actually. And uh, but um, anyhow, 
it um, got removed and treatment and and so I'm very uh, very okay with what's what what a chronic patient and what information uh, they would want what application they would want yeah yeah well and and that's always the I mean not not you wish that scenario on on uh, on anybody but the more that you can sort of sit in the shoes of of your customers and their customers and so on. Yeah, would have preferred uh, not to have done it this way, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, it it does give you a new perspective for sure. Mm. But uh, a digital front door in healthcare is pretty much like you would have with a with a bank. You can log on and you can see all your accounts. You can do all your stuff uh, via one uh, front end. It might be your phone. It could be a uh, web browser. Now, um, getting on to the funding side and listing on the NZX, yeah. Can you walk us through that journey? You, you you joked at the beginning around the the roller coaster ride of of business. I'm picking that maybe that was part of that. We found that the listing period uh, for this company was very challenging. Uh, we raised some money for sure. Uh, we spent it on R&D, but our R&D wasn't very effective because our developers were isolated from. Uh, real users, and a lot of the R&D we produced wasn't very good. And I do believe this is a common malay of large software companies. You know, uh, you know it could be uh, IBM and a few others, uh, I think, have fallen into this trap. And we certainly did. Then at the same time, um, the Obamacare sites, we were the dominant vendor in Obamacare and a lot of the HIE sites, they started running out of money. So first time ever in the company's existence, we started going back in revenue. We went back like seven and a half percent one year, and seven seven percent the next year, I think, something like that. And it had never happened to us before. So you normally, wouldn't have been well prepared for that then. No, normally we could uh, grow our way out of any sort of hiccup, but this time we couldn't grow our way out of it. In fact, the hole got deeper because our revenues went backwards, and because we got larger, we'd lost uh, the startup agility we'd had for the first decade or so, and so we didn't respond quickly enough. And another real problem was is a lot of our projects are big projects uh, into the tens of millions of dollars or more. They were material contracts. So we had a lot of difficulty, like how did, when can we announce this project? The customer won't let us announce it. We have to announce it because it's a material contract. And it was just, we spent so much time in our disclosure committee disclose, uh, discussing what we could or couldn't disclose. So, um, yeah, it was bad timing and Iran wasn't the greatest of fit in terms of being listed coming. So yeah, it was very tough. So we had to do some pretty significant cost cutting savings. We took one of our one part of our business, Rhapsody, which was a very mature product, uh, very profitable, probably getting close to its zenith. We uh, sold that off and that provided us the uh, resources to delist. And then we took a lot of cost out of the business and got back to profitability. But uh, yes, roller coaster uh, journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you made it through. That's uh, no, no, only, only, only just. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back, what have been the other sort of challenging times which we, which have ended up with some good lessons? Uh, one uh, challenging time was going from 15 to 25 people. Because uh, up until 15 people, you know, one person, you knew what was going on, you knew all the sales, you knew all the projects, you knew everything. Past 20 people, this, there was just too much going on and it got too complicated. And then, unless you delegated and had a team working for you, 
of managers or people uh, responsible for various areas, you couldn't grow. So as a business, we sort of stalled for a couple of years around about the 20 person mark as we started getting some more uh, leaders in place and so on and so forth. That was one tricky, uh, tricky thing. Another thing was when you're very small, just being credible. You know, what do you mean you're going for a 20, $25 million project, your revenues are only two. Uh, how can you do a $25 million project? You, you know, so that was uh, quite tricky. One, one challenge meant that we had to always bid through other people. Oh, really? Yeah, well, when you're a small, you have to build, bid, bid through uh, a systems okay. integra integrator. Right, right. But as we've got bigger and now, we don't have to do that anymore. Mm, mm. Is, um, you, so you can control your own projects. Was that part of how you how you got those bigger customers when you were going for the, the 10 or $20 million project and so on? Or were there other other tricks to, oh, you to just building agree. that building You just that started confidence doing and, bigger and bigger projects. Right, so it was a, a gradual process. Yeah, one, one project recently is in the hundreds of millions. Uh, the view wasn't that another vendor had a, had, a, had a full Nelson lock on this tender where nobody else had a chance. So we couldn't get a system integrated to bid with us. So we bid it ourselves and happened to win. Uh, so, Fantastic. <laughs> you know, we're an enterprise B2B software and big projects. So they, they, it comes with this, uh, your own unique set of challenges. If you're selling over internet, a subscription, to a thousand dollar a month kind of product or a couple of a couple of grand a month, it's far easier. So we get exposed to lots of very very large international tenders, uh, often issued by governments, often very uh, well organised, but very very competitive. You know they're playing us against everybody else, um, so they're fairly challenging projects to go after. And how do you decide what to go after? Because, I mean, each one of those bids must be very expensive in terms of time and oh, yeah, resource and so on. They can, run, so into on, a, right? they can, can really run into, easily run to half a million dollars or a million dollars to respond. Mm. Yeah, easily. Well, you've got to look at, uh, first of all, how good are you, is your product fit? Secondly, uh, how well do you know the customer? Do they have, budget, do they have a budget set aside? All these uh, uh, gates you want to get through. Yeah. And then uh, once you're committed, you're committed. And once you once you got like a couple hundred grand into the bid, it's very hard to pull out. It's very hard. And I mean, you talked about you know going in for for bids where, you know, it seemed like that there was somebody else that was was going to win it, or you know, it seemed pretty challenging. How do you get that confidence? Because you you know, it may feel a bit like gambling going into into you know some of these sorts of opportunities. Oh, some of them, sometimes you don't even know right at the last moment. I remember we won a big deal in Australia and I found out out in some supermarket, I can't remember which supermarket it was. And well, I was certain we'd lost. And you just don't know. And that, that's a sign of a really good, well-run bid process. Uh, they've kept it quite totally, you know, uh, and there's, there should be a review process at the end of it. Um, the countries that do a good job, you know, that's what they do. Tenders can be challenged. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in terms of, of people, you know, you you've talked about having you know some really incredible people. You can't build a business like this without amazing people. Absolutely. How have you done that? How have you how have you found those people? How have you developed your people? Uh, we had a very a lot of success with graduates. In fact, some of them have stayed with us 10, 20 years, and uh, we had some great people out of Auckland University. Actually, all all the New Zealand universities. And you just try and get the very, very best talent you can get. But I guess the other lesson is um, you have the best talent, but if you don't organise them correctly, 
they will be inefficient. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't organize them correctly, you know, there'll be lots of meetings and politics and other bits and pieces. I knew we had a little bit of a problem during a listing when I asked one of my developers who'd been with me for actually 20 years, actually more. So what did you do uh, this week, Paul? And he says to me, oh, I've been in meetings all week. And I said, you're a very good developer. You shouldn't be in meetings. You should be developing. So um, these days, as we've gone back to a startup line of business uh, model, you don't have to book meeting rooms. The meeting rooms are all free. You just bowl into one. And when you're in a small startup kind of operation, you, you don't have to have a meeting because everybody's discussing stuff all the time. In fact, when Orion got going, uh, we didn't have a company meeting for the first two or three years. And I, and I was a bit embarrassed. I thought real companies had meetings, so we better had one. So we, <laughs> <laughs> so we sat, down, sat down in the boardroom and said, okay, what are we going to talk about? Well, I, we don't really know. Eh? What's, <laughs> what's the action items from the last meeting? Oh, well, we didn't really take them. We had some action items, but they're well you know, out of date now. Turned out we didn't need to have a meeting because we had a continuous meeting. Mm-hmm. As a startup, in one room, there's one big ongoing meeting, and you ask a quick question, get answered. Some people who are interested would make a contribution. Everybody else would carry on. One big meeting. Everybody knew what was going on. How do you find that tra- translates today with remote nature of things? You've got offices in you know, 15 odd countries, a workforce that's really that's really spread out. Obviously, you know, different layers of management. It is really tricky, and the line of business model um, is okay to some extent. But the real problem is, is when you come to do an installation of products from multiple multiple lines of businesses, which happens to us a lot. So normally you'd want the developers in the line of business people themselves to do that install. Uh, so that's the one area we have a little, um, we try and have a blended local people and product people doing the install so the product people can learn um, how well their product is or isn't performing, uh, how easy is it to install. As these software uh, organisations do get bigger, retaining your startup innovation agility isn't easy which is why you see a lot of big uh, software companies really slow up in innovation. Yeah, that's that's actually quite quite fascinating. It's, you know, I think we've probably all all seen it with software that, that was very innovative at one one point in time. Yeah. But you sort of look back and think, oh, haven't really seen, hasn't really changed much for for quite a few years. Whereas uh, you know, often in the early days, these things are, are really improving at quite a clip. I think the model that uh, we um, we we look look on as being one of the best for large scale software development operations would be Amazon. They've done a fantastic job, you know, remain very, very innovative. You know, Google has their moments, and I think Microsoft have reinvented themselves in recent times, so there's innovation coming out of them as well. But um, yeah, the Amazon AWS do have some very, very good processes. And because you've been around for a while, that means you've been, you know, you've got code that was written a long time ago. Yeah, don't, t- don't tell me about it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that code you want to delete, yeah, we've got a lot of that. Yeah. How, do you, how do you deal with that stuff? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's code that was very, very good 10 years ago, uh, leading edge. Now it's been replaced by React or some other, something else has come along. You have to uh, keep your software current. No software developer wants to work on technology that's a decade old. They no. all want to do the, the new, shiny you know, Scala or um, we're doing a bit of that these days or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, uh, it, it, it is the 
the biggest problem, the biggest challenge, uh, your legacy software, keeping it current. Yeah, so you do have to you have to put some some effort into into that to keep it moving forward, and and that's also sort of part of probably cybersecurity and and privacy type things. As we as time goes on, we deal with new challenges. So that yeah, hey, the biggest the biggest thing challenge. is making a difference here is the move to the cloud, because mm. for free out of the box you immediately get uh, some protection from the cloud vendors such as Amazon. When you're in the cloud, the software vendor is suddenly responsible for doing upgrades. And that was a bit of a rude awakening for us because our software used to go on to uh, hospital sites and it was uh, up to them to do the upgrades. Yeah. And, and that was okay, we got paid for it. The problem was though, a lot of our sites got on older and older and older software because they didn't bother doing the upgrades. And uh, then what would happen is they say, well, the software is very, very old. We, we need to spend uh, $20 million on buying this new shiny thing or $39 million to buy a new shiny thing over here. But if you just spent a little bit of money upgrading this guy over here, you wouldn't have had, to have had the big capital outlay. But, but I think the cloud is making a massive difference. The upgrade problem for customers and, uh, mainly, mainly goes away. Uh, you get a lot of extra cybersecurity protection. So, yep. Yeah. Now, sort of stepping back and looking at, at New Zealand's sort of broader technology sector and, and use of technology, what are your thoughts on on our opportunity as a country going forward to, you know, really take advantage of innovation that you know often comes out of New Zealand? The tech sector is going to be, become our biggest sector, bigger than dairy, bigger than everything else, and uh, you know it's going to happen over the next ten years or maybe sooner. And um, uh, selling software, selling technology, you know, from an environmental point of view, apart from the old plane plane trip, is generally. Um, very good for the uh, environment. It doesn't use up a lot of land. You know, basically, you're putting your ideas into software and then selling it. The weightless export, as they call it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, Helen Clark with her Knowledge Wave thing, uh, I, I think was the, uh, the pivotal point. Prior to that, software was just something a kooky thing off to one side. After that conference, uh, the tech sector and got far more prominence, you know, far more focus, and look at look at it where we are today, a burgeoning sector which is going to become our biggest exporter. Mm. And it's interesting to you know mark that point in time from you know a, a very talented political leader. Where do you see government and politics sort of what their role should look like going forward? I see some nice things about the Labour Party, okay. <laughs> but the, the current Labour Party has done a very poor job of engaging with the business sector. It's hard to find a, a business organisation who's had a, um, a good experience there. And I think it's a totally missed opportunity. Uh, these people um, who run big companies, thousands, tens of thousands of employees, uh, they get those jobs because they're really good at running big things. And uh, you know, the Helen Clark government tapped into that. This government hasn't, which I think is a bit disappointing. I think they missed an opportunity. Uh, a lot of uh, businesses wanted to help out during the COVID period. Uh, that didn't work out very well. It's a missed opportunity. So some lessons for whoever's next. Whoever's next. Yes, let's <laughs> put it that way. And you know, find that a lot of business leaders are very generous with their time, with their resources, prepared mm. to help the country. Mm. A lot of them do philanthropic things, so they um, you know, can be very helpful. Mm. 
And look, you know, I think in, in technology, all sorts of areas of business, sport, you know, we have so many Kiwis that punch above their weight on that on that global stage, and uh, it makes sense to, to tap in and, and take advantage of that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, not even though, not even just New Zealanders living here, but all over the world, mm. prepared to help. Mm. That's great. It's been uh, fascinating to chat. Anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up, Ian? No, no, just that, um, you know, when I started off in uh, technology, to where we are today, it's just worlds apart. It's just people don't understand how things have changed. And for the better, this country has just such wonderful prospects and technology. And, you know, you find a lot of really clever people around the world want to move here. We should encourage that. I agree wholeheartedly on that yep. one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for, for listening in. Uh, and thank you, of course, to our show partners, uh, Vodafone, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and and Guerrilla Technology for, for their support, keeping us uh, uh, keeping us going. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Thank you, Ian McRae. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.